Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Yasmin, this week you interviewed Dr. Sue Verma, and I'm so bummed that I couldn't make it because it's about one of my favorite topics, which is optimism. I love to consider myself an optimism, but I'm curious to hear what were your big takeaways from this episode? Yeah, it was such an interesting conversation, Kaya. She was talking about a stat about how 25% of us are mostly like genetically optimistic, but there's so much that we can do to get to that point. And what I find so interesting, you you know, Sue Varma is, she's a doctor, she's a practitioner, and she kind of walks through eight different pillars and easy tools for us to incorporate in our lives that are like actually approachable. And I swear in the beginning, like the first 15 minutes, she's like, if you can master optimism by these things, you're going to have more joy in your life, feel more purpose, more self-compassion. I'm like, girl, sign me up. I'm here for it. So this was a really fun one because I know we think a lot about this K of just like, you know, how we can manage our stress, how we can be more optimistic. And I'm always trying to just manage my mood and whatnot. So this was a fun one for me. We kind of go through also our own personal experiences of burnout, how we can work through that and how optimism helps with that. You know, one thing that I feel like I'm a broken record player talking about is also the power of rest. I know so many of us feel like if we don't get good sleep, we feel less optimistic the next day. Like she walks through the science behind it, which is fascinating. So this was a really fun one. I won't go into the weeds because I want you to definitely hear from the doctor herself, but hopefully you find this as helpful as I did. In this week's episode, we talked to Dr. Sue Varma. She's a board certified psychiatrist in private practice in Manhattan, as well as a highly regarded award-winning national medical contributor for major news outlets. She's also a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at NYU and teaches medical students and residents. She was the first medical doctor treating first responders and civilians for PTSD, depression, and anxiety at the World Trade Center Mental Health Program at NYU. She believes that physicians have a duty to not only take their patients from a state of dysfunction, to function, but also from functional to optimal. And we talk all about that today. She also has a book coming out in February called Practical Optimism. We'll include all those details in our show notes, but we hope you enjoy this one. Well, Dr. Sue, I am a big fan of your work. I'm so excited that you're here and there's going to just be so much for us to talk about, but I'd love to start with the beginning and the basics. What is practical optimism? So practical optimism is a skill set, a mindset, and an action set. And it's looking at exceptional mental wellness and how to cultivate it through the lens of optimism. And there are eight pillars. They're not in any particular order, but basically like these are the sort of top eight things, if I were to give advice as a psychiatrist, clinician, speaker, educator for 20 years, these are sort of the high yield best practices for greatest health, wealth, success, interpersonal relationship, really happiness and success in every aspect of your life. Oh my gosh, I'm here for this all. So sign me up. I'm excited to dig in. And, you know, we'll go into your eight pillars in a second, but I'm always so curious, maybe at a high level to get your thoughts on, why is it that some people survive or even thrive in very challenging or difficult situations? Yes, you know, 
For years, we always thought of this, and, and I know I certainly did, as something that you either had or you didn't. So you were either born resilient or you weren't. And that's something that I saw from my work in 9-11 patients and something I got curious about, that why do some of us have it seemingly naturally and others don't? And what I really became interested in our ability to develop this capacity to withstand stress, because believe it or not, most of us have that capacity. And one of the key features of resilience is actually optimism. And optimism, even though it's genetic, get this, only 25% of it is genetic. 75% of it is learned. And it's actually associated with specific gene, the oxytocin receptor gene. But what that gene codes for is coping skills, psychological resources, support systems. And those are all things that can be developed through the eight pillars of practical optimism. So fascinating. So 25%. So I'm curious, you mentioned briefly your work at the World Trade Center. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story because it feels like, you know, so much of your trajectory and, and what you're talking about came from that moment. So maybe you can talk to us about what your work was at the World Trade Center after 9-11. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, during 9-11, I was a, you know, a trainee and I was working in a New York City hospital and all of us were being prepared to help people. But what we found is that there were so many more unfortunately unfortunate deaths associated with it than people that we could actually help. What we did find is that in the aftermath, the residents um, who were living down there, people who were working, you know, in that downtown Manhattan area, really anyone in New York and really anywhere across the country, people were affected by it. Cleanup, rescue, recovery. So those were um, the, you know, people that we saw in our program. It was one of the three centers of excellence, this program at NYU. And um, after I finished my residency training, I was recruited for this program. You know, I felt a little bit of that imposter syndrome of like, oh my God, like, what do I know about trauma on this level, on this magnitude? And we were all sort of in it together, all the clinicians. And we got the best training. We called in the best experts and we became those experts eventually. But it, you know, there was a learning process and understanding so much about trauma that it's not one size fits all, that there's a lot of things that predispose some people to trauma. For example, past history of trauma. Um, you know, a lot of the folks who were involved with cleanup, rescue, recovery had been sort of uh, were recovering from their own traumas, political refugees, a variety of circumstances. So all of this might put you at risk, but that doesn't mean that you're going to develop PTSD symptoms. And there were a lot of protective factors. So I became interested in like, you know, if if all of us are doomed and our destiny is already written for us, right, then why are we going to change? But I became very interested in how do we empower people with tools, skills, resources that all of us can access? Because there was this concept of big T, you know, the big trauma, the life-threatening events, horrific, tragic events. But then I became interested in the little T's, the everyday hassles of life, because all of us are going to experience that, whether we have a big T in our life or not. We're all going to have stresses, losses, disappointments. And what I learned from that is that resilience is made up of certain key things, having a sense of humor, having flexible coping mechanisms, having a moral compass, being able to help people. And optimism was one of those big things. Um, and I saw some really amazing people, patients that I learned from who never qualified to come into our program. There were tons of patients who had medical symptoms, so like asthma, headaches, sinusitis, all related to the toxicity in the air, who, you know, for a variety of things, got injuries, got cancers, all sorts of physical problems, but they never met the criteria for anxiety and depression. And I was always like, why not? Why didn't you break? And I found that it's because they, they bend, right? And we all have that ability in these sort of high speed, high wind categories 
to bend, to be able to be flexible to life's ups and downs so that we don't break. Oh, that's so powerful. I mean, I can't imagine being there at such a crucial time in our history and just seeing, I guess, you know, that would fall into the big T trauma. But for people who are listening, maybe you can kind of differentiate what is little T trauma versus big T trauma? So, you know, first, I want to just validate everyone's experience of loss and trauma. And it's really not up to me, or really, it's not up to anyone to say how to how, to, how do we differentiate. But because for what may seem small or inconsequential for one person may be very significant and may fall under the big T. So again, not my definition, but in psychiatry, you know, up until a certain point, post-traumatic stress disorder was seen to occur in a subset of people, only 8% of the population that experienced a life-threatening, either witnessed it or happened to them themselves. So this is like, a, you know, somebody holding you up at gunpoint, witnessing somebody get killed in front of you, so whether you know them or whether you don't. Um, so a variety of life-threatening, horrific, tragic, outside the realm of everyday experience, right? But in my years of practice, I have come to see that while the little T, somebody might say their parents getting divorced, uh, losing a parent, you know, those were somewhat seen as more everyday losses, but one could argue and say, well, you know what, for me, those were the big T, you know, my parents separating if they, if they did at the age of 10 or my parent dying when I was a kid or at any age. So really not up to us to judge, but generally speaking, the little T's are all the small like things, you know, I didn't get into the college of my choice. I didn't, you know, I had a breakup with a partner of, you know, five years who I thought was the love of my life. So things that might fall into more of the everyday stuff. But again, we want to respect and validate your experience, no matter big T, small T, somewhere in the middle, all of it. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like we had another expert on the podcast and she was talking through this. And I was saying that, you know, I, I, I recently started EMDR therapy and I'm like trying to understand like these big life events that might have happened. I'm like, you know, I feel very fortunate where there's no big T, but I know there's little, I know there's so much other kind of trauma, whatever you want to call it, like little T trauma or even running a business, like toxic work environments in the past. Like there's so much there. So I'm glad that you're bringing this up because I think even for myself, I kind of put it aside thinking, you know, I'm good. Like, why do I, I can't complain about this. I don't have, I have a family, I have a roof, you know, a roof above my head. So I think just acknowledging that, you know, there could be so many things that you might feel in your gut as, you know, uncomfortable, that could be yeah. this little tea. So I think kind of your practical tips are so applicable to anyone listening. So I love just how you differentiated that. And I love, love, love that you said, how do you bend, not break? Like I get goosebumps just saying that because we all know that life, whether it's work, personal life, like things will always happen as you create a bigger life for yourself. It's just like your cup gets bigger. So I'm always thinking like, how do I build up my resilience, whether it's with work or personal life or family expanding? So I'm just so fascinated by all this. So I would love to now go into maybe those eight pillars. I know you kind of briefly mentioned a few ones, but what are these foundational pillars that will help us all with our optimism? Absolutely. You know, and I, and I love what you just said about like having a bigger life, like taking on more responsibility and, you know, stress management and stress coping has to do with like, number one, it's not all stress is bad, right? There's a, diff there's a distinction, you stress, distress, and you stress is all the challenges that make you grow. Um, and distress are things that you find complicated or difficult or that you don't feel equipped to handle. And the key is that this is where the eight pillars come in is that somebody may say, you know, some of these things, I don't even know which category they fall into because the things that are making me grow are also really challenging. And I can't, 
I'm, I don't have the resources to bring to the table. So like if someone gave you an opportunity to get an even bigger business or even to expand or take on two, three, four things or challenges of choice, right? Mm -hmm. So the first pillar is purpose and they're not in any particular order, but when I was thinking about them, there's sort of an arc to this, starting from purpose, ending in practicing healthy habits. And then, so the way I look at it is purpose is an intention. It's a goal. It could be big P in the sense that like purpose in life, right? What am I meant to do? Why am I on earth? And then there's the everyday purpose, the little things, you know, like what's my purpose today? What's my aim by having a conversa difficult conversation with someone that I love? What is my aim? What is my goal um, with what I want to do this year in my business? What are my intentions for this relationship? Um, so being intentional, most of us aren't because we're busy <laughs> and yeah. our brain is hijacked with a million things going on in the world with the day-to-day -day stuff that we don't really have the time to sit back and say, if I'm struggling with something, often I'm not clear about my intention or that multiple things that I am clear about are clashing with each other. And that's not a bad thing. That's life. You know, like if what I want is coming in, my purpose, my intention is clashing with somebody else's. Right. And maybe we, we can find a bigger sort of third thing that we can agree upon, which is to preserve the relationship. You know, so I feel like every aspect of our life could have purpose. But in this chapter, it was about if you're struggling, if you're having experiencing burnout, maybe you need a rejiggering of your purpose, right? And our purpose today, what we want to seek is not the same thing as what it was 10 years ago. And that's totally okay. Because as we grow and change, our purpose also grows and changes. And what we may want 10 years from now may not also be the same thing. Um, and sometimes, like when I talk about in your job, if you're struggling or suffering, there's a concept called role remake, that finding meaning, finding something new about the work that you're doing, um, connecting the work that you're doing to somebody else's benefit. So there were so many like hacks about how to get purpose. Exercise is one way. People who have purpose are more likely to work out longer, harder, stronger. Um, people who have purpose live longer. Um, there's a study that showed that having a purpose, you're 30% more likely to live over the course of eight years compared to people who don't. And people who have a purpose are less likely to have heart attacks and strokes. So it's really worth a person just sitting down and being like, why am I doing this? For who? For what? You know. And the key is that purpose doesn't have to make sense to anybody else. It's what excites you. It's, I say it's your soul's way of engaging with the world aligned with your own unique interests, talents, and hobbies. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. I 
love that. And just to pause really before you go into the other ones, I think what you said, there's so many of us who aren't intentionally like living the life we want. Like even let me just give an example for myself. So my purpose so much is in our business of supporting women and what we're doing, but on the micro level, you know, because the business is growing, I'm kind of always just in reaction mode. And one thing that I recently started doing, because I'm kind of feeling the burnout, you know, I'm not there yet, but I can see it kind of coming if I keep going the way I'm doing. So one thing that I recently started doing for myself to get a little bit more intentional of the week and to be clear with my why and what I'm here to do with the business, every Sunday, I'll carve out time and I'll just kind of think through my schedule to think about, okay, how can I make sure I'm filling up my cup while doing all the demands? Because I feel like that resiliency factor is a little bit easier to your point. Like life is stressful, business is stressful, your work can be stressful. But if you can somehow be a little bit more intentional with some things and take that time to pause, yes. it really can be helpful. So I'm just going through that recently, I but I wanted that. to bring that up. No, I love that. And also like, I think part of that is you know, we always talk about like FOMO and then also the concept like fear of missing out and then the joy, the JOMO, the joy of missing out in that I think once you have a purpose, your JOMO bucket of the things that you let go of, that you say no to become a lot more clear because the concept of balance for women who are working, who have families, that is, is a strange and interesting thing. I think it's like a beautiful idea, but not a realistic reality. And we have to be okay with saying no to certain things and letting go. And there's always opportunity cost to everything that we say yes to. So, and then creating rest intentionally. That's another thing I'm big on people doing. And we could talk about that, but that's another way to fill your bucket and boost your resilience is sleep and a variety of other ways that we can get into. Yeah. And is that one of the pillars rest? Yeah. So under the, the present, which is like, you know, to, sort of towards the end about how to be more present. I talk about the idea of like intentional rest, like active rest, passive rest. So ways that you can replete yourself. Oh, I love it. I need to hear more about this. So what is your recommendation? Because I feel like the whole concept of rest, because I'm so just passionate about what I'm doing, I'm realizing I'm not taking that active relaxation or, or more rest than I should. So would love to maybe hear maybe some examples or any any stats or anything that will motivate all of us, especially so many women listening today are running businesses, having families, you know, we're, they're go-getters. So I feel like this can be super helpful for every woman listening in today to hear. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the key is that rest is not something that you have to earn, you know, or that you have, that you, des that you have to like earn or have to deserve. It's something that you should put into your productivity plan, right? Like you don't begrudge your phone battery for dying. You don't yell at it and, and say like you incompetent moron, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you only 25% charged? No one's yelling at their technology tools and devices, right? It's inherent that any piece of machinery is going to need maintenance. And why do we treat ourselves any differently? So I think if rest often, especially in our culture, it's vilified. It's seen as something that's only meant for the weak. It's meant only for people <laughs> who are, you know, heaven forbid, human. Don't yeah, even like being human, the H word. No, no, I'm not human, right? Like we have this idea, um, you know, we could talk about this in terms of the emphasis on, you know, what do you call it? Boss babe, career woman, like generationally, like women who can have it all, right? And if you say like, yeah, I, I, I can and I want to, right? But not every single day will I have it all. And then look at how you define all, 
right? If it's, you know, somebody asked me, like, you seem to have this, this, and this going, like, how do you do it? And I'm very clear to say, yeah, I, I do have these things, but they're not all happening all at the same time, right? It's going to be, there's one day, let's say you're traveling, you're not tucking your kids to bed that night, right? If you're traveling to give a talk or whatever you're doing. So maybe you were having fun in, on vacation. I just came back from a trip with a bunch of friends. I was walking around the city a million miles, but I didn't, I wasn't in the gym lifting weights. And that's something that's really important to me to keep muscle mass, bone density, all of these things, like as women age, like in their thirties and forties for our brain health, for everything, right? Like I really believe. So it's not every day I'm not going to, I might be in three places in a day. I may not be in 17. And at this point in my life, I'm okay with that. But so looking at rest as something that is a necessity, there is no earning involved, carving out time for rest. So one thing that we learned, a new study that came out that it's not even the number of hours that you sleep a day, it's the consistency of when those hours happen. So if you're only going to be able to get six hours or seven hours, let it be the same exact time every day, have a rhythm, have a routine, build in what I call oasis moments. So these are moments in your day where you like shut the world out and you're like 15 minutes, get out of my room, <laughs> you say to your family in a very nice way, if you have a partner, if there's young children involved, you know, mommy's going into the room now, she's doing her business. And you don't have to explain yourself, but it doesn't hurt to say if you're going to do this on a regular basis, tell them like, I will come back being a much better parent for this. One thing I hear from a lot of women is so much guilt around their anger. They feel so angry, tired, frustrated, losing their temper. And I know so many women who are like, Oh, I have anger issues. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, like, would you have anger issues if you know, five people weren't tugging at you and asking you, can I have dinner? Where's my soccer stuff? Where's my backpack? No, probably not, right? It's these circumstances that are bringing this out of you. So carving out 15 minutes, finding a comfortable place in your home. It could be a closet. It could be a bathroom. I don't care. But say to yourself that I'm just going to sit here and do not scroll on your phone because the minute we're alone, we're on our phone. And unless you're the videos that are being fed to you are all about cute cats and puppies and, you know, silly memes, eventually you're going to see something that's going to trigger you in some way. I'm not doing enough, right? So-and-so is doing this. I should be doing this. What's wrong with me? So that's not relaxing. It should be something that you find restorative. It could be meditation. It could be journaling, but it in theory should be technology free if possible. I love that. And it's amazing how much that 15 minutes actually makes a difference. I'll do like a, I'll go on YouTube and do like a yoga ninja meditation. Cause I need some guidance. I can't be yes. in silence or I'm on my phone and I know that's not good, but the guided meditations, I'm like, this is amazing. So it really does it. make a big difference. And 15 minutes of just like alone time. And I love, we talk a lot about just the importance of sleep. And I love that you mentioned that um, recent research of just consistently going to sleep. We were just talking about that. I'm fascinated. So if you're not getting like eight hours, at least do your best to sleep at the same time. And I definitely feel a difference personally. If I, you know, sleep two hours later, I genuinely feel off the next day. I'm like, I don't know yes. if it's age, but I feel a difference for sure. Yes, totally. You know, and it's this idea of like, we talk about like burning the candle on both ends. Like, you know, sometimes like at night, I'm like, oh my God, finally quiet moment, right? Nobody's interrupting me. And they, you know, my kids don't want to go to bed. Like it just becomes later and later. And then I realize, like, you know, they say like, what is it the expression? Like borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Like it's the same 24 hours like that, you know, like you're not getting 26 hours in a day, right? So if I'm staying up late, those two hours that I'm staying, it's coming out of my day in some form the next day in terms of like peak productivity, whatever it is. So I 100% recognize that. Um, that tendency to want to just work, 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 
but burnout is inevitable, you know, and if it's not burnout, it's going to be your part relationship with your partner. Yeah, it's going to be with your health, your children, it's and in any aspect of your, your coworkers, the business, people that work for you, like anybody, you know, and it's going to make you short tempered. You're going to want to, and that is not good for for anybody, any aspect of your life. And I'm also seeing like a lot of sort of in late thirties, early forties from friends, from patients is like relationships, like life partnerships dissolving. Right. And so that's a whole other topic we can talk about another time, but you know, just that what, what, and what I'm hearing is people saying, I didn't do the work, you know, whether it was on myself, on the relationship with the family. And I should have, instead I was focused on everything else. And I can, I can understand and I can relate that hunger, that desire to succeed. But I would say it has to be balanced because I work with very sort of what you would call like, you know, high performance, elite performance, like very successful, hardworking people who are like, okay, I want to roll up my sleeves and work. But they'll also say that I've neglected my personal life, my health for so long. And everything you see, it's been at the expense of my life, my, my family, my whatever. And I, and I just, and I'm like, you know, and we get them back to health. And that's what practical optimism is about. It's not just getting back to baseline, not just going from dysfunction to function, but from functional to optimal. And that's not where medicine has been like psychiatry or any other aspect of medicine is all about like, okay, well, we'll break, we'll fix what was broken. And I'm like, no, 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 we have to go beyond. I don't want to, as a doctor, just fix the broken. I want fabulous. I want exceptional. So pushing the person but I always say like, and we joke, I might joke with my patients, like if only you had come in sooner, but the reality is nobody comes in sooner, right? Nobody, if anyone is listening, I want to say, if, if the shoe hasn't fallen, don't wait for it to fall. Don't wait for the other shoe to drop. Like you are so lucky if you're hearing this and you're in the prevention stage of your life, you're in the maintenance, but don't worry, even if the other shoe has dropped one or two, there's still hope, you know? And I would say, I always say to people like get professional help. You know, we're talking for educational purposes only. The book is amazing, but it, it, it for many people may be a supplement to their own work that they're going to have to do. Yeah, no, and I think this is such an uh, important conversation because so many of us can easily neglect that self care, and you know, we're just so passionate about putting people like you on this platform to just remind women like take care of yourself with like the basics. And I love that you even talk about rest. So maybe can you highlight maybe one or two other pillars that you see? being the most profound with the patients and the women that you see? Yeah. So one is like, you know, we're talking about a lot of female patients saying to me like, oh, I need help with like processing my emotions. Right. Like, so I have anger issues. And I say like, I don't want, you know, we all say like, we have anger issues. Like, what does that mean? Right. And so process, when it comes to processing emotions, I say, you have to name it. What are you feeling? Claim it. Where are you feeling it? Where in your body does it manifest as headaches or clenched teeth? Um, a lot of times people have irritable bowel syndrome, like they have all sorts of like physical manifestations. So name it, claim it, then tame it, right? What are you going to do to help soothe? And I'm a big believer in self-soothing and what I call finding your inner caregiver. So when we were kids, we would like, you know, run to a parent when you're like very young and, and we, were, we would look to be soothed from the outside. As adults, we still do that, right? Except then we turn to list any number of unhealthy practices from numbing ourselves with food and alcohol and sex, like social media, whatever it is. And there's healthy ways of numbing, you know, like the streaming of like the fun TV shows, but like maybe not 15 hours in, right? Because then it's coming at the expense of other aspects of your life. So name it, tame, you know, name it, claim it, tame it. And then the last one is reframe it. So this thing that has happened to you, you know, it's happened. Don't begrudge yourself. Don't shame yourself. Because shame turns you inwards and a lot of times we 
that shame can sometimes turn into depression. And um, because shame paralyzes you, it just says like, I'm wrong, rather than, okay, I did something wrong, right? And guilt in small doses is fine, because it takes you to a path of reparation, right? If I feel like guilty, guilt is a in mild amount says I did something wrong, what can I change? Reframing is actionable. It says, I recognize what I feel. Okay, I'm feeling angry. Let's say my kid is talking back to me. I'm a bad parent. I should have been stricter or I should have been gentler. I should have been whatever, shooting. That's something I talk about in the book when we put ourselves down. And then the reframing is, all right, but you know what? I'm a good enough parent. I'm a good enough whatever. And what can I learn? What can I do? What am I going to do differently as a result of this? What have I learned? What have we all learned? Um, but then getting the support and help that you need, right? And, and it could be simply learning certain t- t- tasks. So I talk about problem solving. And in that chapter, it's all about emotional regulation techniques, like recognizing what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Some of the thoughts that we have are distorted, right? So then you catch yourself and it teaches you ways to reframe that, you know, and in the pillar of pride, I talk about developing self-compassion and how do you do that? And a lot of people think, oh my God, it's woo-woo. What is that? That's too touchy-feely for me. I just don't know. It's too nebulous, foreign concept. And I tell you about my story and it's very personal and it's not something I've shared before. And it talks about, and that's another entry point for me into practical optimism is it wasn't just 9-11. It was sort of my own personal breakdown, if you will, and then recognizing that I was so hard on myself and, and, and absorbing cultural messaging, messaging from being a doctor of you're not allowed to get help. And so it, this is where I talk about that rest, you know, isn't something that you earn, you know, and then I talk about having self-efficacy and why that's more important than self-esteem. Um, and then the present was the rest. And in people, the, the pillar of people, I talk about interpersonal relationships and developing an aloneness practice, meaning like valuing your own company. And I really love talking about the idea of aloneness because it's intentional. And coming back to that idea where you are spending time with yourself, quality time, it's not scrolling, it's not avoiding painful emotions. It's treating yourself as if you, you were the most interesting person in the world that you wanted to get to know better. Um, I love and because we don't, you know, like we, we, I think we take ourselves for granted, you know, we're like, what can we do for other people? How do we meet their needs? But, you know, take yourself out on that fabulous date. I told a patient of mine who was like, why? She's like, my boyfriend is not romantic. And then we went on and on and she was telling me about herself. She's like, I had to, you know, it's our anniversary and I'm the one booking, you know, the, the making the plans for the travel. And I was like, you are the guy that you've always wanted to date, right? Like you, like it's okay to be your own best friend, best advocate. You know, like we, so many times we're looking at other people and we are waiting for their company to provide us joy, to provide us affirmation. And, and you are the source of your own joy. When you are hanging out with someone and you're enjoying their company, yes, they are the stimulus, they're providing the fodder, but you have that ability to appreciate, you know? So that says something about you. So don't don't take that for granted. I love that. Oh my gosh, so many thoughts going through my head. I love everything that you just said. And just like thinking about how you can honor yourself and give yourself joy versus always like wanting to please people or give other people joy. I love that. It's actually a concept I've been thinking a lot about of just like, how do I bring in more moments of like fun and happiness and make that, that are personal to me. So that definitely resonates. And I think, you know, you mentioning kind of about your story, 
which is so similar to so many women about you just being hard on yourself. And it's interesting because I didn't realize how hard I was on myself until my husband reflected it back on me. And I'm not hard on people around me. I actually give a lot of people grace. Like if I gave the same grace I gave to others, to myself, to your point, I think I would feel just like incredible all the time. And so it was interesting because I've been thinking a lot about, man, I didn't even know subconsciously I was so difficult on myself and hard and I would shame myself and make myself feel guilty. And you mentioned one thing, how self-efficacy has helped you versus self-esteem. Can you kind of mm -hmm. talk about what that, that means? Yeah. You know, so much of the time we're all about like, oh, we want to like boost like the kid's self-esteem or my self-esteem like was injured. And the problem, it's so flawed because self-esteem depends on the outside, on accolades, on achievements externally. And as long as you continue to perform well, your self-esteem remains high. So many of the patients that I see, they came in when like so much of their life, they were working really hard and they just kept getting boosted or they were able to get, um, you know, promoted or accomplishments. And they came in when they sort of got like life, like smacked them in the face and was like, oh no, you're not perfect. And even if you are, it doesn't matter. There's a world and circumstances beyond you. You don't control everything. And it doesn't matter how hard you work. Like things don't always work out. So basically they were faced with harsh, cold reality that like sometimes bad things happen to good people. And that caused their self-esteem to plummet and it caused anxiety and depression. And they were just like, I don't know because I only know one way. I work hard and things work out. And now things aren't because maybe they didn't get along with the boss or you know, other things, politics came in the way. So things, they didn't have control. And when things aren't working out your way and people are not you know, kissing your butt, so to speak, you're and you're not doing well even though like because at some point you know we're going to be i want to say promoted to our highest level of incompetence right because yeah. <laughs> we just keep going and so you know there's going to be somebody bigger better more accomplished and then you feel like you got knocked down self-compassion self-efficacy are two things that have to do with our belief in ourselves and our belief in our abilities and believe it or not our belief in our abilities is more important sometimes than our actual abilities and I'm not talking about these people who are like narcissists and grandiose and they completely lack talent and they're like, oh yeah, I'm amazing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply believing that you can achieve puts you in a position where you, you learn, you persist, you work harder. So while self-esteem comes and goes because people like you today, they don't like you tomorrow, self-compassion and self-efficacy are two things that you always have control over because they're putting deposits, they're giving you agency, they're teaching you skills, and they're allowing you to forgive yourself. You know, and they and they find that students who have, like, for example, self do compassion self compassion exercises. So self compassion looks at like three key things: Am I mindfully observing what I'm what I'm thinking about myself? So if I'm berating myself, okay, I'm aware of it. You know, Sue, you're an a hole. Sue, you're this. Sue, you're that. Like, I'm mindful observance. Then there's acceptance. All right, I screwed up. I get it. And then there's this idea that I'm not the only one that screws up. Many people screw up. This is not the first time this has happened. And then the fourth thing is coming up with a plan to get out of it. So if you can see a student who fails on a test, if they recognize I'm not the only one, this is not the first time, it's not going to be the last time, other people also screw up on a test. They allow themselves to get to forgive themselves and then to move on. They study harder. They end up doing better on tests the second time around compared to the kid who's like, all right, I'm a loser and it's over, game over. I love that. It's so interesting. On uh, So on this podcast, every Monday we have 
um, an entrepreneur that kind of goes through their journey. And it's been three years of me doing this. And I've heard like every pitfall any woman has gone through. So in my business, you know, it's natural to hit the wall on many things, but I kind of didn't realize I was doing what you were doing in terms of like, this happens to other people. And it makes you feel a little bit better and not so hard on yourself. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, that one founder, this happened to her. And you know, in such a stressful situation, I actually feel like, okay, I'm not, it's not just me, you know, I'm not crazy. Yes. So that's so fascinating to hear that as part of your um, compassion tools, which is so cool. Yes. Yes. And I think it's so important that we recognize. And that's why I think like, I think some of my closest friendships have developed like through other through somebody's struggle, somebody was in the group was struggling. And that's kind of how we got closer to each other. Um, and because you kind of put the, the wall comes down, you become vulnerable, you share part of yourself. And if it's done in a safe enough environment, maybe the other person shares with you, like, and that's happened to me many times, you know, when I was just like, can I really say this to you? Like, I screwed up, or, you know, I'm not proud of my, you know, whatever it is, and then to be able to talk to someone, and they're like, you know what, I also went through something similar. And yeah. this is what happened to me. And then I'm like, oh my God, I thought you were so, you know, perfect. And like, you're still perfect in my eyes because I love this person. I respect and admire, look up to them. But it was so normalizing, mm. you know, to be like, to, to normalize. Cause I feel like on social media, and we create these worlds, right? Where everyone is supposed to have it all together all the time. And that's what they're selling. Like, look at me, I figured it out, you know? And I'm saying in this book, Practical Optimism, is that I didn't know, I struggled, I suffered, I have, and still, sometimes I have to use the eight Ps. Like I, the, the great thing about being a therapist is that I get to use this stuff that I learned on myself. And so much of what I put in that book is the science. I did thousands of hours of research and everything there was sort of like backed scientifically. It's also from my patients who are my greatest teachers, but it's also from, me being really hard on myself and internalizing standards that I could have and probably should have let go a long time ago. And I appreciate you being so open about it. I'd be curious if you feel comfortable, like what is maybe one thing that you're still kind of working through as someone who clearly has done the work and knows the research behind it and you support so many people, you know, what is maybe one thing that you're kind of still navigating? You know, I think it's like from a young age and I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm past the point of like, you know, pointing fingers, let's say at, at my parents, you know, because they're just, you know, wonderful people. But I think that like growing up in the sort of uh, South Asian household where a combination of, you know, sort of very educated folks who accomplished a lot and did a lot for community, did a lot for society. You know, there was these expectations of like, you're supposed to have your stuff together. Everyone in our family does, right? You are, you are meant to be raised to be service oriented. That includes taking care of, you know, parents, children, everybody. So this room for, let's say, indulging myself, you know, like the concept of taking breaks, the concept of taking rest, the concept of doing nothing, that is so foreign to me. You know, this idea, there's always this self-imposed pressure. It's not coming from yeah. anywhere else, you know, mm -hmm. to con like, like, like there's, um, there's a schema in schema therapy. We talk about like this productivity, like you need to accomplish, like sitting and not doing anything makes me feel really bad about myself, you know? And so I try to then sublimate that into something sort of more appropriate where I'm like, okay, I'm going to work out. I'm going to, you know, so it's like, it feels like a break because it is a break from my work, but it, and so, you know, the idea of doing nothing, that's really hard. Even my nothing it has to still be something, you know? So like on my nothing days, I'm like, okay, I still need to, I'm going to go for a walk. And that feels like nothing, but I'm like, I'm getting steps in, you know? So like, that's something I have to, you know, I don't know how to relax and do nothing. 
No, and that's something that I that I struggle because I feel like every day I have to this this work is worship ethic that I grew up with, where like you always had to show growing up in our family, show something for our time. So like growing up, like my parents and I joke about it in the book, they're like, Oh, in the summer, like, you know, you're 14, you either like before you could have a job, like I was working since I was eleven years old. I had so many jobs in my life. I paid my way through, you know, college and med school and residency, never had financial support. So, you know, a lot of this pressure of like, you need to show up for your time, you know, and your time has to be spoken for and you can't rest or take breaks until you've put in that time, you know? So that's something that I'm still, that I've struggled with my whole life and that I'm still, you know, but it's made me productive and accomplished, but then you're just like self-flagellating. Yeah. It's so interesting. That's something that I'm clearly working on too. And it's, it's interesting because in a positive way, it's gotten us to where we are in so many incredible things, but on the flip side, it's like, if you can create that balance of adding more rest and scheduling it, but I love your, you know, your examples of even whether it's like working out, I noticed that for me too, like working out has been helpful. I love massages. I don't know if that's active relaxation, but like, it's not, I can't do anything with my hands and like yes. be on the phone or even acupuncture. Like I can't move. I have to lay there. So I need like the forcefulness to rest yes. and relax. So I I love that. And it's something that, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, we all look at each other and I'm like, man, am I the only one who's crazy? Like, what is wrong with me? Like, I know I interview women like you every week. I know the importance of rest, but I still struggle with it. You know, I've gotten my sleep down. Sleep is crucial. I definitely feel going to your earlier point my optimism glasses when I sleep is like the world, every, everything is possible. To, like, for example, last night, for some reason, I'm exhausted today. I kind of I don't think I slept well. And I was telling my husband, I have these crazy thoughts. Like they're not anger thoughts, but I, it's not normal Yasmin. And I have the awareness of it just being a little bit more pessimistic, but I, I know why it's because I didn't sleep well. I don't try to put too much pressure on those thoughts, but it's just very interesting. The importance of sleep and you know rest on top of that. But I actually want to go, you mentioned something super interesting in another interview where you talk about this like optimism score and pessimism score. Can you kind of share more about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, like there are two independent scales and like, we don't realize it. We think that it's like the same continuum, optimism and pessimism, and that if you're one, you're not going to be the other. And the reality is that we're always both. And it also depends on which area of life, because some people are like, oh, I'm super optimistic in my work, but not in my relationships or vice versa, or I don't feel great about being a parent. So there are two things. One is it depends on which area of life we're talking about because you could be optimistic in one and not in, and, and be pessimistic in another, but also they're two independent constructs that you have to continuously be working on. So in the same arena, you could be, both be optimistic and pessimistic, and it's important to maximize actively that they're two different exercises, right? So when we talk about pessimism, these are some, some of the hallmarks are, do I take things personally? Do I think that the bad things that happen to me, do I take them personally? Do I think that they're pervasive, every aspect of my life? Do I think that they're permanent? And as a result of that thinking, do I become passive? And you want to check in with yourself. So that would be like, you know, how you would assess pessimism. And then at the same time, you, you could still be optimistic to be like, yes, I am doing all these things. I'm taking it personally, this, 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 this. But I also feel like it's going to all work itself out, right? So like being able to imagine and envision the best possible outcome that takes practice so i want you to do both like look at optimism and say all right let me 
envision the best possible outcome, but then let me also work towards it. And that's where practical optimism is a skill set, a mindset, and an action set. So the mindset is thinking that the best thing is going to happen. The skill set is, we talked about processing the emotions, name it, tame it, claim it. I also talk about the five R's of emotional regulation, how to challenge some of your distorted thinking, creating rest, creating meaningful relationships and how to do that. And then the idea of practicing healthy habits, which is the end of the arc of, I have an intention, I want to do something. I use the other P's in between to help get rid of all the obstacles, which are negative emotions, which are distraction, technology, um, concrete problem solving. You know, there's like 25 questions to ask yourself, like boom, boom, boom. Like, what's my intention? What are my obstacles? how to go from point A to point B. And that's what practical optimism does. So you can use it as a habit in everyday life and you can use it as an action set. Like for New Year's, like if you're like, okay, I want to have a goal, go through the eight Ps and say, this is my purpose. These are the emotions that come up. These are the obstacles. This is how I'm going to deal with it. This is how I can be self-compassionate. So you, you can even use the eight Ps to make a reality. And then in the last chapter, Practicing Healthy Habits, I talk about how to make a habit automated and that's how you get stuff done is it becomes mindless how to make a habit sort of second nature so coming back to your question yes absolutely optimism and pessimism are two independent constructs and you want to boost the optimism in through action through thinking through skills and then also catch the negative thinking and reduce it through specific techniques that i talk about how to distort negative thinking uh, how to challenge these negative distortions I would love to go on that, just like how to challenge negative distortions. I mean, I'm sure your book goes into detail, but I feel like there might be a lot of people listening who really resonate with that because sometimes we believe our thoughts a little too much when sometimes you're like, who the heck is this crazy person? Am I nuts? But I would love maybe if you could share how we can challenge that because sometimes we're not even aware of those distorted thoughts. Yes. And you know, I love what you said, like, who is this crazy person? Because the reality is when I talk to my patients, I always tell them like, listen, you didn't invent this out of nowhere. Like it's probably within the realm of possibility. But what I would say is what is the likelihood, right? Like what is the possibility? What's the probability? And when we do that, like the, the, the number gets reduced far lower, right? So like, mm-hmm. can you give me an example? Think of something that somebody said to you the other day, a friend or, you know, give me an example and I'll, and I'll walk you through a dist- like how you would think of that distortion. Oh gosh. And I'm putting see. you on the spot. No, no, no. Um, could it be work-related or should it be sure. something that someone yeah. said yeah. to me? No, no, anything. Um, okay. I'll just give an example it's Black Friday this week. So we have a lot of sales going on for the business. And like last night, the emails weren't ready. And it was like, there was a long pause until I kind of got feedback from it. And in that time, my mind was just like, gosh, yes. Like, it was just like negative thoughts. Like, okay, what happens if it doesn't go out? You waited last minute. And it was, it was a lot of like um, pressure on me for no reason. It's honestly probably why I'm tired today, but Mm -hmm. there was like this weird, these weird thoughts kind of happening during that time. Is that helpful or? Yeah, yeah, no, great. And that's exactly like, you know, we've all been in that situation where like the tension is high. So already, right, the stakes are high. So already we're feeling, we're revved up, right? So one is the physiological experience of my heart's racing, my breath is shallow, and that signals that there's something wrong. Just the physiological state of arousal. And then the cognitive part of it is the distortion of what we call catastrophizing. Like automatically our brain tends to go to the worst place. Like, oh my God, I don't have these emails ready. I'm so screwed. And then 
everything is going to fail. And even though, you know, what happens when we worry about things and we've all done this, I've done this. I mean, everybody I know has done this. We worry is interesting because it's emotional avoidance. We don't allow ourselves to feel the real fear, right? So we're not really getting at it. And if I were to ask someone, okay, in your situation, what are you really afraid of? Right. And, and when we go through it, you know, the things that you would tell me, what, what would be your worst fear in a situation like that? If the emails didn't go through, what would happen? I mean, I think subconsciously, which I know logically this isn't right, but in that moment, it's like the business is going to end. It's going to fail. Like, but it's not true. So I have to like catch myself, but that's what my body I think thinks. It's so weird. (laughs) Yes. And no, totally. And like, let's say if it was someone I'm working with and they were like, I think I'm going to get fired. Right. Like, let's say they, 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 something didn't happen exactly on time or even before it's happened. And what's interesting is it's in that moment, they're not even aware of what the worst possible scenario is. They're not even entertaining it. And that's why I say, all right, well, I want you to write it down. And they're like, why would I do that? Why would I put out into the world the worst possible thing? And I would say, listen, if you're not superstitious. And if you are, go with me on this. It's okay to say the worst possible thing, because once you say it and once you've given it words, you know, I think it was a quote by Mr. Rogers that like anything that's speakable, right, is is something that we can work on. If you don't speak it into the universe, what it is that you're afraid of, because we all have this like rah-rah, only positive things manifesting. I don't want to say anything bad. It's okay. Sure. Say it, right? Once it's like a kid who's like, there's a monster under my bed. And I'm like, no, let's take, a, <laughs> let, let's take the flashlight and let's see what's under the bed. And there's nothing, right? So once you once you look at the worst possible and you're like, okay, that's the worst. And how likely is that? Let me ask you, how likely is it that your whole business will fall, right? Like, <laughs> like negative 10%. Like, yeah, even yeah. Possible. So the like, right. So then when you go through that, you're like, okay, what am I doing? So I would say to myself in those shoes, and I've been there in some realm of I'm catastrophizing, I'm jumping to conclusions, I'm imagining the worst case possible. And then you say to yourself, all right, some of these techniques is how, what would I tell a friend? So what would you tell a friend if I came to you and I was like, I have not what's, sent these out, what's wrong with me? Again, the shaming, the blaming. What would you say to me as a friend if I was your friend? Oh my gosh, I'd say don't even worry about it. Even if it's sent out later tomorrow, it's all good. Nothing, what's a big deal? <laughs> yeah, like nothing happened. So what, you know, we say like not, no one noticed, nobody cares, everybody's busy, yeah. busy and it's still well before Black Friday. Everything is fine, right? But so we are k- kinder to ourselves. I mean, sorry, to other people than we are to ourselves. And then another question to ask yourself is, will this matter five years from now? And most of the time it doesn't, right? But again, we we are our own harshest critics and we, we just set such difficult standards. Um, and I think that once you can get to a place of, I'll be fine, you know, whether this works out in this moment or doesn't, big picture, zoom out, you know, and say to yourself, will I be fine? Worst case scenario, no emails go out, right? Like, will my business survive? Will I still have hopefully a roof over my head? You know, and if you can say yes to those things, and you're just like, you know, whether you give it up, if you believe in a higher power, if you believe in the universe, I'm giving it up to God, I'm giving it up to the universe, I'm giving it up to something, because I've done my part. And again, the human, like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's so true. And I love, I remember the first time I heard this, you, what you just said, like, does this matter five years from now? That when I first heard that years ago, when I didn't even have my business working in corporate, like it was so helpful and it makes you not overthink like bullshit stuff. Like yes, it just makes yes. you kind of intentional on what really matters and yes. doesn't really sway you away from other things. So 
I, I love that so much. It was really profound when I, I heard that. So I'd love to kind of end. You mentioned, you know, the last leg of your book, which I love, is just all around like health, wellness, how that can impact optimism. And you mentioned something about how to make a habit more automated. So I'd be curious to just kind of understand what that means a little bit from like a health perspective. Yes. So, you know, we make about 30,000 choices a day. And, you know, 200 about of those are about food alone. And can yeah. you imagine wow. at the end of the day, how fatigued is a person going to be to have to make minutia like decisions? And the last thing you want to do is leave something really important in your life, like whatever it was, food prep, going to the gym, you know, journaling, meditating. Why leave it to the end of the day when you're so tired, right? So choice to me is the enemy of habit, right? Because if you leave it up to choice, to motivation, to willpower, it's not happening. It might happen two days after that. That's why that's why New Year's resolutions so often fail because we don't have a plan in place. And what I mean by plan is automatic, automatic, no brainer, not an option. And if a habit is not working out, you have to ask yourself, how have I not set myself up for success, right? Like how am I interfering with my own with my own success? And then go through the obstacles and I outline sort of how to set yourself up properly so that like if you're someone who wants to work out and you're like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. I'm setting my alarm for 430 and you're like, yeah, okay, are you a morning person? No, I go to bed at 2 a.m. That's not happening, right? Like stop deluding yourself. If you are not a morning person to get up, what you forget is you're not just now developing a new habit to exercise at 5 a.m. You're now asking yourself to also wake up at 5 a.m. after, in this case, three hours of sleep, right? So try not to do things at the most inconvenient, unlikely time that they are going to happen, right? If you're someone like who says, I'm my peak is 6 p.m. right when I come back from work, that is most likely for me to work out. Like you want to make the, the environment so conducive workout clothes, whatever, if that's what you're trying to do, everything is ready. So it is non-negotiable. And what happens over time is that it becomes second nature. It becomes automated and it's, you don't allow choice to, to even interfere. And if you're someone who like, if you know this about yourself, let's say once I get home from work and I see food, a warm bed, my family, a television, I'm not likely to want to go to the gym, then don't come home. Right. So do everything you can in your power to have all of this figured out so you're not leaving it up to choice at the last minute because choice is not going to work in your favor. I love that. It's so true. And like the planning aspect of it. And I was that person in terms of working out. I'm not a morning person by any means, but I, for years, I would do a 6 a.m. class and I'm like, what? Like looking back, I'm like, I don't know how I used to do it. It definitely was against the nature and it wasn't sustainable and I wouldn't feel excited about going. Um, and even another one, you know, my, I was going to this workout class, like 40 minutes, like a 30 minute drive in LA. Like you never know when there's traffic. And my husband used to be like, you need to find something that's like walking distance or close by like the, the power of just like the ease of use of getting there just to your point. And so I've learned all these things a hard way, even with, even if it comes to, you know, we talk a lot about wellness habits, like whether it's sleep or eating three meals a day, that's kind of the next pillar for me. So how do I just make it easier and scheduled in my, in my day? So I know, okay, it's lunchtime. Let me not think I go and I pre-prepared something. Cause usually during the day, I'm not the best at putting things together. And I realize that. So I love just like, what is the easiest way to incorporate something that's realistic to you, which yes. sounds so simple, but yeah. it's so yeah, profound. No, I mean 
Yeah, it is. Cause it's like, it's this idea of like, know thyself, right? Like, yeah. So yeah. If you, and lower the entry barrier. You know, I talk about like in that chapter about like exactly what you said about having to drive. If It's like, if there are all these barriers, let's say like in the middle, the dead of winter, let's say it's cold and you're like, I don't want to get out of bed and it's still dark outside. Why am I going to go to a class that's completely across town where let's say maybe you don't have any friends or you don't even like the instructor and it's not even your favorite form of exercise. So all of these are small entry barriers that when they multiply with each other, the, the, the chance of it happening is so low. So if you know, like the meals, if you're somebody who's like, doesn't want to like a big meal in the middle of the day, and you're certainly not going to use the time, like, are there pre-made foods that you buy? Are there things that are frozen that you would put in a microwave or something in a fridge or a bowl that's already ready or something like, if you're not going to be able to have lunch, is there a protein shake? Is there pre-made smoothies or something like a shipping, you know, like whatever the local options are that you literally put in water, you put in like simplest, anything that is reachable, grabbable to you. So like the idea of entry barrier, you know, to, to keep that in mind and how we create hurdles and make it unnecessarily more complicated going against the grain. Cause I'm like, life is already hard enough. I feel like we're walking an uphill battle on a 45 degree angle. And then all these hurdles are like, okay, let me throw on a sack of potatoes, a 90 pound sack of potatoes, and then walk up this 45 degree angle. So that's, that's where the entry barrier comes in. It's like, take off that sack of potatoes and stop walking up an incline. Oh, I love that analogy. And also someone else's like journey or like hurdles, it might be different from yours. Like I look at someone, I'm like, man, how do they do all that? And make sure they take their supplements all the time. And, you know, I'm just making something up, but what I've realized, like know thyself is what you said. So it's like, what really works for you? What are your hurdles and why make life more difficult than it is? I love that. That's like the mission of our business of bringing wellness. Like how do we just make it easier or more accessible to women? Cause we're all busy. Life is tough for all of us. So I love that the end of the chapter is all about that. But Sue, this was such a pleasure. I'm so excited for your book to come out. We're going to give all the details in the show notes to pre-order. What a perfect way to kind of start the new year for when it's out. So such a joy meeting you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoy talking to you and like congratulations on all your success and the help that you're giving so many women and this amazing podcast. You're, you're a great host. So I'm so glad that we were able to connect and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.